Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. In an era of barnstormers, stunt pilots, and air shows, in a time of growing female empowerment, one woman aviator soared above the rest as the face of women's aviation. With tomato juice, a funnel, and a little jar, she took her dreams aloft, only to have them crash. However, her legacy in memory will never die. The end. Let's talk about Amelia Earhart. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1897, the New York Times begins to use the slogan, All the News That's Fit to Print. William McKinley is inaugurated as the 25th President of the United States. William Price of Washington Star becomes the first reporter assigned to the White House. McCall's Magazine is first published. The pencil sharpener is patented. And on July 24, 1897, Amelia Mary Earhart was born in Atchison, Kansas. Amelia was the oldest daughter of two of Edwin and Amy Otis Earhart. Edwin's family historically had been destitute, but not lazy. I'm reminded of the Ingleses, you know, Laura Ingalls Wilder. They worked hard, but they just had bad luck all the time. Seemed like he was so poor as a child, in fact, that he caught some fish on a Sunday. And his papa was a very, very strict reverend. And you were not to do work on Sunday. And he wasn't going to let the children eat those fish. And the mom begged him, begged, begged, my children are starving, please let them. I mean, how poor, that's poor. That's really poor. Amy, however, was born pretty much silver spoon in her mouth. She was the daughter of another Amelia. All these women are named Amelia. I mean, it's a beautiful name. But she was the daughter of Amelia, who went by Millie, and Alfred Otis, who was a very much a self-made man. He was the man in Atchison, Kansas. Now, a lot of people that haven't heard, we do, because Atchison is really close to where we are, but Atchison at the time was a port city on the Missouri River, and it was a, it was just starting to build up when Alfred moved there. So he was buying chunks of land, he helped found the a railroad, the gas company, the bank, I mean, this guy owned a, he, this was society in Atchison, Kansas, which a lot of people might laugh at, but for them it was a big deal, and it was big box. Well, he was pretty cold and pretty distant, says everyone, but not so his daughter Amy. She was Miss Social Butterfly. She knew everyone. She was asked everywhere. She had wealth and prettiness and security. All were hers, but Grandpa did not believe in the education of women. They were to be decorative. They were to be entertaining and idle and not an embarrassment to their family. Which Amy was. I mean, she fulfilled her father's requirements. Yeah. It was her brother bringing his friend Edwin Earhart home from college to her coming out party where the violins played under the lanterns in the garden and sparks flew. Edwin was dazzled by Amy. That was the lifestyle that he was aspiring to. He was a student, a law student at the University of Kansas, and that was what he wanted for himself. He wanted to get out of the poverty of his youth and become what the judge, what Alfred Otis was. And Amy might have been that ticket for him. So that certainly added to her appeal. So when Edwin proposed, Grandpa's hair stood on end. A Lutheran, he said, with brothers that admitted that they were house painters? No thank you. He was, it was N-O, new. Grandpa also had a feeling, smarter Grandpa, from accounts that I read, that Edwin was a little slippery. He told you what you wanted to hear a little too readily. Tall, dark, handsome, and sketchy. Grandpa 
intended on breaking this action up. He had to go out west to recruit a new pastor for their church, so he took Amy with him. We'll see about this. Where Amy, decorative social butterfly, inadvertently became the first woman to reach the summit of Pikes Peak. Which I think is hilarious. (laughs) Yay! So then he came back and the love hadn't faded, so he decided to set an unmeetable stipulation. Alfred said that Edwin needed to make $50 a month before he would consent to their marriage. This empowered both of the young people because five years later, they finally did get married. And they moved to a house in Kansas City, Kansas, which is still there. There's no marker. I wonder if the people even know. But Amelia, at three, this is a weird upbringing, was sent back to Atchison to live with Grandma and Grandpa. And her sister Muriel... The baby lived with mom and dad in Kansas City. Amelia lived with her grandparents during the school year and went home in the summers until 8th grade. Well, mom's life changed dramatically when they got married. She was the pampered Deb up until that point, and suddenly she's in an ordinary house, just one of many, and having to raise her children and do a lot of things that she never had to do before. Well, and she's out of Atchison, where everybody knew her, and everybody knew her family, and there was deference paid, but... We're talking a 50-mile difference between Atchison and Kansas City, but it's still, at that time, it must have, it could have been a million miles. So basically, she grew up as an only child with crusty grandpa, worrywart grandma, and a cantankerous cook that used to uh, swat at her hiney with a wooden spoon. There was a lot of escape into reading. Um, she started reading really early at about the age of five, and one of her favorites was Alice in Wonderland. She blamed a lot of the things that she did on a tribe of small black creatures she called the DJs, the D-E-E-J-A-Y-S. They were a cross between the Crazy Cat cartoon and a Jabberwocky. So she would have got that from Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. They'd take the blame for things like candy. What candy? Oh, the DJs ate it. <laughs> yeah, my son had, also an only child, had three imaginary friends named Rags, Rose, and Tati. And a white horse named Albion that no one could see but him. Amelia and Muriel, her sister Muriel, had imaginary horses as well. Kind of fun. Well, she was also very, very active. She had a gang of girls she hung out with, some cousins, some not, and they were so grumpy over the restrictions put on their behavior. Like, Amelia jumped over a fence once, and Grandma happened to see and came out and read her for filth. In my day, a girl would never do anything more strenuous than roll a hoop in the town square. And, of course, the boys could show up muddy and covered in fish scales and run all over the place. So that was not cool. Amelia (laughs) learned to keep that all out of Grandma's sphere. She used to steal the butcher's horse. She liked the one that would kick. She used to ride that horse. She would sled with the boys. She would go fish. She taught all the neighbor kids to ride a bike, which means that not only did she have to learn how to ride a bike, she had to be the expert in the hood. So she was definitely the baby gang leader again. So the girls decided they would pride themselves on baseball, basketball, football, jumping bikes, exploring caves, and kicking A. They were really fighty. In the summers, Amelia would go back to live with her parents in Kansas City. And that's when she and Muriel would have a lot of time together. The parents were really laid back as far as encouraging their kids to try anything. And Mama went ahead and bowed to the inevitable and sewed her children bloomers to wear under their skirts. I saw this cute picture. I wonder if I can get it and put it on the show notes of of Amelia on stilts and (laughs) Muriel on a swing wearing these goofy blue bloomers. It was cute. During one of those visits home, Papa and Mama took her to the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. 
Um, you know, the meet me in St. Louis, Louis, meet me at the fair. That I'm um, smiling because you're finally the one that's singing. Your voice is so much better than mine. Amelia was mad because Mama would not let her ride the roller coaster. So when she got home, she made one off the garage. And the boys, the neighborhood boys, gathered around to watch. They're shaking their head. Nah, I'm not riding it. Are you? I'm not riding it. Are you? No. So she's like, Tch. So she climbs up there, she gets in that cart, and she heads down and, of course, flies in the air and lands on, you know, her face. Yeah. And so she gets up and she's like, I need more track. <laughs> she makes more track. And after a while, it was safe enough that everybody wanted to ride it. I was like, oh, oh mama put, she did put her foot down on that one and made him take it down. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a lot you can do before people come out to the backyard. That's right. Uh, she collected bugs and bones. At one point, she spent so much time trying to reassemble a horse skeleton that the locals were calling her Dr. Bones. Papa gave her a 22 to shoot rats You're going to shoot your eye out. Yeah, I don't know. So this fearless, blonde, gray-eyed, freckled cutie was popular both with the boys and girls throughout her entire schooling. First to eighth grade, she went to the co-ed college preparatory academy and all those grades were downstairs and the high school was upstairs just about 40 kids so it was almost like tutoring really yeah she did really well academically although she never pushed herself one of her teachers said amelia's mind is brilliant but she refuses to do the plotting necessary to win honor prizes plotting's overrated plotting plotting how to build more track (laughs) You know, practical application of physics is better than theoretical. That's what I think. I also think it's funny that she read voraciously in defiance of Grandpa, who didn't want women to be educated, and she daredeviled in defiance of Grandma, who thought girls should sit there and do their sampler and do nothing else. Which I tells me she had them both wrapped around her finger. High five, Amelia. Yeah, no kidding. But this exciting... Idyllic, stable childhood took a turn when she was 11. Papa got a job, still with the railroad, in Des Moines, Iowa. For a year, which this is the end of this wonderful lifestyle that she had been living, her and Muriel stayed with the grandparents. It was supposed to be only a month, but it stretched out to a full year while Mom and Dad found a house in Des Moines and got settled. But they did move up to Des Moines, Iowa. Off they went. Papa got more money and more promotions and ultimately got access to a private rail car with which he wiped the face of his in-laws. Um, <laughs> so four increasingly impressive houses in four years. If you, can you imagine moving four times in four years? I imagine army people do it all the time, but... I did it. Did you? Yes, but I only had one kid and she was really little. And when the second one was coming, we stopped moving. And that's why I live here. Everything seemed to be awesome here at the end. They lived in the most fashionable area. Um, If you're from Des Moines, she lived on Cottage Grove Avenue. I suppose it's still nice. Um, They had fur muffs and silk stockings. They went to concerts. They had influential friends. But at 14, one day, Papa just lost his marbles. Evidently, he and Mama might have been having some trouble for a while, but his... He traveled a lot, and maybe that kind of hit it or something, or helped, but he hit the bottle, and then he hit the road. Yeah. It, it was kind of weird. He took his stuff and just vamoosed. And Grandpa could have said, I told you so. And all I know, he was dangling financial incentives to his daughter to leave that guy. Yeah. But, you know, divorce is pretty shameful, even though in Iowa it's a pretty liberal state, and she could have kept her stuff. But she just wanted him back. I don't know if Grandpa put the pressure on or whatever, but Edwin did come back, bottles and all. But when Grandma and Grandpa died later that year, to Edwin's great surprise and humiliation, Mama's portion of their fortune was tied up in trust so he couldn't get a hold of it. 
He was infuriated. Yeah, and it was obviously an assault to his character that she was only going to get a small percentage every year and never not touch the principal for 20 years. Mm -hmm. To keep it out of his greasy hands. Unless he died. I mean, that was in there. I mean, Grandpa couldn't spell it out any clearer. Mm -hmm. So his drinking got so bad, he got sent to a sanatorium by his boss and then, you know, fired, and eventually he just... Descended to being the wandering drunk walking down the street and was really unemployable. Yeah, for a full year between... Now, he had had this fairly prestigious position in Iowa and just drank it away. Uh, It took a full year for him to find another position, and that was just as a clerk in St. Paul, Minnesota. Yeah, it was several years of pretty grim family life here that... At one point, the girls and Mama were living in two rooms of someone else's house. Amelia went to Hyde Park High School in Chicago for her last year of high school, and she did not go to her graduation. She did not pick up her diploma. For a girl that had been socially active up until this point, that just tells you the, the wear and tear it took on her psyche. People didn't know her. Yeah. The yearbook. Like, there's like the girl in the brown dress who doesn't talk or something yeah. like that was in, in the yearbook. Yeah. But she kept it all inside. People did not know her situation. Um, she consulted no one. They moved to Kansas City, Missouri in a house a couple of miles from here, also unlabeled. And after we record today, if it doesn't rain, I'm going to go down there and leave a note on their door. With you. And I'm going to say, Amelia Earhart used to live here. I, I didn't know if you knew. Okay. Kid, get in the minivan. Let's do it. The first time her child got in my minivan, he said, is this a minivan? <laughs> Which proves <laughs> that what I've been saying is true. I don't know anybody, but Susan has a minivan. She didn't believe me until that moment. Until that moment, yeah. So yeah. finally, Mama got control of her reduced fortune after some litigation, and Papa got at least partial control of his behavior and Amelia went off to finishing school which was actually really good for her I think she got to let go of the burden of being the grown-up it did exactly what it was supposed to do it polished her up she did she got to play her sports she played field hockey and basketball she got good grades she was vice president of her class and secretary of the school chapter of the Red Cross and on a more frivolous note she and her roommate thought it was awesome to crawl out on the tops of these really scary buildings and just sit there in their long dresses having scaled a dome. (laughs) She had a lifelong habit of going up on roofs. Mm -hmm. That was her thing. This is also where she started her scrapbook. Not decomposed, thematic kind. All these clippings jammed into a notebook she kept of women who had achieved in a man's field. She kept up with this for the rest of her life. And one that's notable that's really dear to my heart is Lillian Gilbreth, who was an industrial engineer. She's the mother from Cheaper by the Dozen. By the way, who, go in your kitchen and look. Do you have a trash can that you step on and the door opens? Lillian Gilbreth invented that step can. Why didn't somebody come up with that sooner? <laughs> so World War One began, and on a visit to her sister who was at school in Toronto, Amelia was kind of struck by the need for nurses. Yeah, she was really compelled. She saw the soldiers coming back from the war, and they were really wounded. And she was compelled to help them. She wanted to help them. Her mom tried to talk her out of dropping out of school, although that's what Amelia wanted to do. And she did go back for a couple months, but then she dropped out. She needed to go back to Toronto, and she became a nurse's aide in a military hospital. Okay, not only did she learn what you would think, first aid, practical nursing, cleaning bedpans, blah, blah, blah. The fun stuff. Yeah. She also um, went to lectures that were open to her. If she wanted to go, they weren't part of her job. And she observed operations, which... I 
could not even think about. And the ambulance men um, taught her how to work on engines. Because even later in World War II, Princess Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth now, that's one of her things. She worked on ambulance engines. Uh-huh. So it was a thing women were taught to do. Could come in handy later. We shall see. <laughs> um, but she still had time to date and go to concerts and hang out. The young have so much energy. We should have started this podcast 20 years ago. <laughs> I'm trying to think of Susan 20 years ago. <laughs> she was kind of flip and sarcastic. And that would be opposed to now kind and sweet and demure. Exactly. <laughs> well, polished up. Maybe you've been to the finishing school of That's, right. That's right. <laughs> Uh, she and a girlfriend went to the Toronto Air Show. Kind of, they went out by themselves because the crowd was irritating them and talking and blah, blah, blah. They couldn't see anything, so they kind of went out by themselves. And there was a pilot who may have been bored, I don't know, but he was amusing himself with kind of chicken fighting the crowd, and they'd shriek and run, and he'd laugh, and he'd circle back around. <laughs> Sounds like a sadist to me, but whatever. He dive-bombed Amelia and her friend, and the other girl, of course, shrieked and ran, but Amelia remembered staring up at it, and she later said, I think... That little red plane spoke to me. Now, anyone who's watched Downton Abbey knows that immediately following World War One, along came the Spanish flu pandemic. Amelia stayed and nursed people, though eventually she did go down, and this was no joke yeah. at all. Um, and she ended up going back to the United States to convalesce and kind of think about what she intended to do. And off to Columbia University, she went and took biology, chemistry, zoology. Amelia Earhart was now pre-med. Did you know that? If she had always stayed pre-med. She was a very promising student again. What a bright future. Again. But then my mom and papa got a little needy. Won't you come back out here to California? And she did go, because one did, if one was an unmarried woman, go back to when your dad said to go back. She had fully intended to go back to school. This is another theme. But the planes began to speak to her again when she got to California. L.A. was full of barnstormers and air circuses. At this time, aviation was a spectator sport. Well, also, Hollywood was all about the glamour of this new machinery, or at least the outfit. I don't know how much was really the plane. Like, you've seen Clara Bow, the pictures we posted of her in Wings, uh-huh. and um, Colleen Moore, the silent film star that has the big dollhouse that we've talked about before, also had a plane, famously. Appearing with the plane in a photo was probably more important than flying it. Probably. Just stand on the wing while it's on the ground. (laughs) There was a lot of activity all around her. She went to every air meet she could. One time, Edwin took Amelia to an air show, and she asked him to find out the cost of learning to fly. He told her it was $1,000, although realistically, it was probably in the 250 to 500 range. But the next day, he plumped down 10 bucks for her to have a flight. Maybe he thought, she'll get over it, just let her have her one flight. And And that actually happened to me. Well, I mean, what little girl wasn't introduced to Amelia Earhart at a certain age? And I thought, I want to be a pilot. I'd love to fly in a plane. So my dad took me, did exactly what Edwin did, and took me to the local airport, Brainerd Field in Hartford, Connecticut, and put me in a little plane with an instructor, and... I went up, and it was glorious until the instructor said, do you want to hold on to the wheel? I said, sure. So I did. And then the tower said, make an immediate left-hand turn. And in that instant, I couldn't tell you which was my left from my right. How old were you? Oh, I was probably 13. <gasps> my goodness. So that point, I decided that. 
being a pilot probably wasn't for me. But anyway, for Amelia, it worked out great. She said, as soon as we left the ground, I knew I myself had to fly. But she did not like the chauvinistic man that had taken her up. So ultimately, she went elsewhere and took her first flying lesson from a woman named Nita Snook. Now, this is not a cheap hobby to have at Mm -hmm. all. So she needed to pay for these lessons because she was bitten. So... Amelia took her first job as a phone company clerk to pay for her lessons. So this plane was called a Curtis JN-4, also referred to as a Jenny or a Canuck, because a lot of them were Canadian in the war, and then after the war they kind of dumped them on the market, like, there you go. It was the old faithful of planes. It was made of stretched fabric. <laughs> All of these old planes look like balsa wood to me. It's yeah. <laughs> crap out of me. There, were no, there was no gas gauge. There was no brake. There was no rear wheel. It was just like a... A long stick that, like, grabbed a hold of the ground on your way by, which I'm sure was bumpy. Yeah. Um, And it had all these weird behaviors that you just learned to compensate for. You know, like, you've all had that old car that you can't have anyone valet or something because it's just like, "Mm, it's too much to explain. I'll just think. We all do that with our computers. Well, it was freaking irritating to Amelia is what it was. Um, It was heavy, and it took off like a fat goose. They had a couple crashes. One, because Nita didn't fill the gas, but there's no gas gauge in this thing. Well, Amelia didn't fill the gas either. Yeah. I mean, that was the thing. She assumed that people did things when they didn't, and she didn't double-check them. All through her life, you read about these complaints. Was she a good flyer? She crashed so many times. They all did. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can't concentrate on just the faults of one person and not look at the whole body. You know what I'm saying? Well, and as a matter of fact, part of what you had to learn was something called a dead stick landing, which Mm -hmm. means you had to cut the engine a mile in the air. And then make it to a target. That's how you got your pilot's license. Uh (laughs) Because they know, well, this is going to happen. So let's see how you deal with the inevitable, your engine dies and you're a mile in the air. Go. I would need to depend on your (laughs) Is what I would need. (laughs) So walking to her lessons in her shocking riding breeches and her fabulous leather jacket that she bought in a sale and then slept in because she thought it looked too new. She wanted to break it in. She assimilated herself into the aviation subculture pretty fast. And she still had at the time, um, she would braid her hair and put it on top of her head like a coronet, you know, (laughs) until a little girl goes, well, you don't look like an aviator because your hair's too long. And she's like, hmm. And that's when she cut her hair. Yep. And that's the style she had for the rest of her life. It's probably easier. The cockpit is open on these planes. That was probably a wise move. Can I interrupt you for a second? Every time I look at those boots, I want to ask you, did you have those boots in the 80s? Yes, I bet. but we would wear them with our skirts that had petticoats under them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was pretty early. I'd say that's junior high because I became a punk rocker at, like, freshman, sophomore year, and I would never have had brown boots. No. It's the same boots Molly Ringwald wears in Breakfast Club. It's the same boots. And if you had them today, they'd still be inside. Oh, yeah. You'd still wear them. Oh, yeah. Classic. They're fabulous boots. <laughs> Um, so she kept walking by this dude, fussing with a plane over on one side. It was made of mahogany, so pretty, and no fabric, (laughs) so that was good. And then it had a new invention in it, an air-cooled engine, which was so much lighter that literally, if you wanted to take this plane somewhere, you could pick up the back end and roll it like a wheelbarrow. A woman could pick up the back end, which was very appealing. That's very, very freeing. All these innovations, though, made the 
old school Canuck pilot suspicious. Like, it can't be that easy. That something's got to be wrong with I don't know if this is a case of ignorance being bliss because Amelia, for her 24th birthday, in significant help from her parents, bought it. From her mom, primarily, because Edwin did not want to help her out. But Amy felt that if Amelia wanted to be a flyer, someone from the family had to be interested in help her. Aww, that's nice. Two grand worth of help. The average income in 1921, by the way, $1,134. So that is more money than almost two men made in a year. Other things you could buy for 2K in 1921 include five cars, (laughs) a third of a house, or 20 years worth of groceries. So I'm just saying, this was an expensive hobby. (laughs) But it wasn't a hobby. It was a platform for her future career. Correct. So this yellow plane was, as she called it, the Canary, and Nita Snook and Amelia had to part ways because Nita was part of that fraternity that didn't approve of the new planes. And so it was time to find a new uh, Mr. Miyagi, Karate Kid (laughs) reference, to teach her the way. And she found an ex-Army pilot to teach her how to do stunts and loops and dives and all kinds of crazy stuff. And she said, I need to be comfortably at home in the air. It's like driving an automobile in traffic. Lady pilots, as they were known, were not really discriminated against, per se, but they were kind of a novelty act a little bit. Now, the pilots, at this point, kind of thought, well, if you have the cojones to do this in the first place, I guess you're in. There wasn't really... It wasn't a sexist environment. No, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Because I seriously think, it's like, well, if you are brave enough to jump in here, then we welcome you. Let me help you out. She did take her new canary plane and set the lady's altitude record of 14,000 feet before she got her official pilot's license, although the record was broken a few weeks later by one of her other female aviator friends. Though, admittedly, in the interest of full disclosure, the men's altitude record was 34,509 feet. So she appeared in the newspapers a lot as, quote, local society girl aviatrix, which is a word I think needs to come back. So that's it, right? We're there, right? Girl has her plane. She has some fame. Though not, incidentally, as Susan was saying, a pilot's license. <laughs> more on that later. And it's just a matter of more of the same, right? Mm, not so fast. It's time to take a little break. And when we come back, we are going to hit her with some hurdles to jump. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with over 100,000 titles for you to choose from. For you, the listeners of the History Chicks, Audible is offering a free download so you can try out their service. It's summer, so how about some vacation-worthy listens? The Great Gatsby is on the top of everyone's list right now. Maybe The Help by Catherine Stockett. Or our favorite recommendation, The Chaperone by Laura Moriarty. The story of silent film star Louise Brooks and the woman who was there to keep the G rating on the trip. Good luck with that. To receive your free audiobook download today, please visit audible.com slash thehistorychicks. Or simply follow the link on our website, thehistorychicks.com. And we're back. So it's not smooth sailing for Amelia Earhart. Clear skies? Oh no. There's clouds that she's going to need to jump. And one of them is fiscal. Amelia had advised her parents in an investment scheme that went very, very wrong. And they lost nearly all their money. Mama Amy actually had to take in boarders to get by. Here's the only silver lining to that cloud. One of the boarders was named Sam Chapman. 
and he began to capture her attention a little bit. He was idealistic and intellectual and cultured and handsome, and they began to see quite a bit of each other. So there's the only silver lining in this part of her life, because secondly, Papa, who had had it, and money troubles do cause, I think, a lot of marital troubles... Especially if you have an underlying drinking problem. Yes. Papa and Mama separated. So Amelia sold her plane. Yes, it's gone. It's time to buckle down and time to be real and get something stable. She studied and worked as a photographer. She even operated motion picture cameras. Accidentally, she was passing by and took a picture uh, right when an oil well first spewed its first oil I mean, right place, right time, and actually was able to sell that picture to some newspapers. Uh-huh. But other than that, she didn't really make a whole lot of money. Photography. Um, so she tried, but she bought a gravel truck. What? <laughs> but here's the thing. L.A. and the L.A. area was expanding like crazy. People moving in. And developers were making subdivisions all over the place. Well, she doesn't know how to build stuff. But you know what? I can haul stuff for the builders, and that was a lucrative money-making job. Although, it was so unladylike that a lot of her friends dropped her. So that will tell you if they were true friends or not. People who aren't friends when you have adversity, you just let them go. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And there's no better way to see those friends than have something like that happen. And drive a gravel truck. She flies a plane. Why can't you drive a truck? Exactly. Well, speaking of planes... She still kept up her connections at the airfield, and the same guy, the guy that built her first plane, kind of kept an eye out for her. And basically, they collected pieces of another plane. Mm -hmm. An engine here, um, a tail here. I mean, it was like she collected another plane and put it together. Plane number two, she is back. She was able to save enough money. So she continued her hobby. And her fame grew again, and people were so excited to see her. She didn't really like doing the air shows. She felt like she was a clown, but it brought her some money, and, you know, and this is something that she loved to do, fly, so. So, now, she got her pilot's license. (laughs) Seems a little late, but (laughs) check that off. She was the 16th woman to get a pilot's license. Here's where the path is smooth, right? She's got another plane. She's got some more fame. Rinse and repeat. You would think so. The next few years, Sam Chapman proposed. Okay, so that's an up. Amelia was horribly sick. She had developed sinus problems when she after the Spanish flu. So that's something that would plague her her whole life. In those days, before antibiotics, this is how serious it was. When you got a sinus infection, they literally had to do surgery for an infection. So it was it was a very serious deal. And Mama and Papa's divorce was final and Mama literally fell apart. Fell apart. She had worked so hard to keep the marriage together for all those years. I know. So it's time for another drastic change. Mm-hmm. And her little sister was going off to Boston to go to, to summer school at Harvard. Just a little place yeah, called okay. Harvard. I keep thinking it's gotta be easier to get into colleges back then or something. I don't know. But, yeah. So, Shinko set up a house for them, and Amelia had a good plan. Okay, we're going to cheer Mom up. We're going to have some adventure. We're just going to throw We're gonna throw our hat in the air. This is what we're doing. She sold her plane. Plane number two is gone. No more plane. She bought a yellow roadster, a Kissel roadster she called the Kizzle, which cracks me up. <laughs> the Kizzle. In those days before Snoop. Later, as a matter of fact, someone called it the Yellow Peril because Amelia drove like a bat out of hell. Yeah. Like you'd call the back seat. I'd call a different car. Yeah. (laughs) 
she decided to drive to Boston, which is totally crazy in those pre-highway days. Like, no one did this. What the heck? And off they went, 7,000 miles. But they would take these side trips. they see a sign. They'd go off. It was really good for the two yeah. of them to do. A mother-daughter adventure extraordinaire. They took six weeks to get across this Isn't country. Isn't that amazing? It and is. this is cracking me up. A yellow car might have been commonplace in Hollywood, but everywhere else, people would literally run out holding dish towels just to gape at the car, and everyone would talk to them. They met a lot of people. That car, incidentally, if you're in Denver today, go to the Forney Museum of Transportation and you can see it. Someone has it, and it's restored. Yay! Along with the car that Tom Cruise drove in Risky Business, also among yay. other things. <laughs> but yeah, That's cool, but Amelia's car. Yes. That's, that's cool. And this whole thing seemed to cheer Mama up. Okay, so now we can concentrate on ourselves again. So now on to her future. A science degree? Maybe engineering. She only scraped together enough cash for a couple of classes at Columbia and a class at Harvard Summer School. And you know what? Harvard only let women in at the summer. The rest of the time it was men only. Uh, and she pinned all her hopes, all her hopes, on getting this scholarship at MIT where there was a brand new department of aeronautical engineering. Perfect. Yes. Perfect, perfect, but alas, she did not get the scholarship and she did not have the money. And so now she started literally flailing around with this series of kind of low-wage jobs. Well, she had failed at so many things. I mean, this is her second failed attempt to get through college. She had tried nursing. That didn't work out for her. Flying, at this point, she had had to give it up. Yeah. She had all those part-time jobs when they were in California. I mean, she's looking at her life and going, what am I supposed to do at this point? And, you know, someone with a less independent spirit, you know, she's engaged to Sam Chapman. How easy would it have been to just bail and take the easy route, really? But she landed a job finally, a career, actually, in the nick of time at the Women's Educational and Industrial Union, which was a place that, quote, provided the best methods for securing women's educational and social advancement. Basically, it was part of the, the settlement movement, which meant upper classes had responsibility to pull up the lower classes, practical ways, education, teaching them English, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It was a big movement. It was spearheaded by women. This was a whole world of women. Educated women. And upper class women, for right. the most part. She passed the initial screener. By boldface lying on her resume, frankly, including taking two years off her age. <laughs> she had actually done that a couple times yeah. in her life. She tried to skim a couple of years off. <laughs> and she passed the second interview due to her personality, I think, and her confidence in herself. They never even really checked references, which is probably good. Because <laughs> they were not real. She began work at the Denison House Settlement, and she was in charge of programs for Syrian and Chinese immigrants. She taught them English. She went on, and she got promoted, and she was in charge of the children's programs. The kids loved her. She's like the Pied Piper. Oh, yeah. They just loved her. She ultimately became the director of Denison House. She's young and new, and that was, what? That was a big deal. And then her influence spread and spread, and the whole Settlement House community thought, aha, here's the bright up-and-comer of the future. Mm -hmm. This is the future of our movement here. I read somewhere that had none of the flying that we all know her for ever happened. Like if this, if she'd never gotten in a plane again, mm -hmm. most likely, just if she followed this trajectory, she would still be famous to us from her social work. I can see like that. she's on that level of praise 
notoriety, you know, and rapid advancement yeah. for having an achievement, you know, not just because she was wealthy and educated. Exactly. So, yeah. So, let's go back just a touch, though. May 21st, 1927, Charles Lindbergh is the first man to solo across the Atlantic. The ecstasy of the world cannot be explained. <laughs> he is greeted in Paris like a conquering hero. He is the most famous man on earth. Five days later from that, Amelia is up in the air tossing out pamphlets about Denison House, the settlement house. And she could feel the old flames licking at her feet again. I love that method of spamming from the air. <laughs> there was a new airport in Quincy. Remember, it's Quincy, not Quincy. In Quincy that put her, quote, on staff. Mm -hmm. And you would think she was the boss because she was given the title of director of the Denison Airport Corporation. But she it was a PR move. She's like all, all over the promotional materials. This is awesome. A fellow female pilot at an air show went down. Her plane went down. And Amelia heard some mutterings like, oh, female pilot, blah, blah, blah. And Amelia ran out, got in a plane, took off, did some stuff, and landed properly. And she said it's because she did not want people to think that it was because of female pilots. She wanted people... To put the blame where it lay, which was with the equipment, which I thought was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Promoting females in aviation was her platform. She wrote an article about flying from a female perspective for the uber-fashionable Bostonian magazine. And here's a quote from that article. When women go aloft, is the name of the article, while women are hopelessly adventurous, they seem to be content to take their thrills only vicariously. There is no door closed to ability, and when women are ready, there will be opportunity for them in aviation. And she became the vice president of the Boston chapter of the National Aeronautic Association. The only woman at their luncheon. <laughs> so pretty much everyone in the room is going to know who she is. Oh, sure. She was being photographed. She was in the papers. She was becoming the face of female aviators. And that led to her being asked, in a very roundabout way, to be the first woman to cross the Atlantic in an airplane, backing up a touch, a socialite named Amy Guest, related by marriage to Consuelo Vanderbilt, by the way. Yes, her husband was a cousin to Winston Churchill. <laughs> and she was a dollar princess. She was a wealthy yep. American who married into British aristocracy. So she was foiled in her own attempt to cross by her grown sons, mostly. In her day, though, she had been a daredevil. Like, she hunted lions in Africa. She flew planes all over Africa. But now she was 55, and her grown sons were making noises, and her daughter had to be presented at court. This just wasn't going to work out, and everybody was against her. And so finally, it boiled down to the following. There was this person... This person named Mabel Ball, who reminds me of Ellen Love in Selfridges. <laughs> Have you seen Mr. Selfridge? I Ellen? just started watching it. Okay. Well, Ellen Love is all like, hello, I'm so cute. Give me a fur coat. Mm -hmm. Okay. She was known as the Diamond Queen. She had a 62-carat ring on one hand and a 48-carat ring on the other hand. The very fact that we know that, that's gross. I don't want a pilot. That's man's work. I just want to be known as the first woman to cross the Atlantic. And so Amy Guest is like, that hoe is not going to be the first woman. And if I can't do it, find me someone nice who will do us proud. An American, a lady with some college who flies, I will pay all the bills. When because Amelia had been in the press so much, because she was being seen, she got a call one day. It was very mysterious. And the caller asked if she would be interested in doing something in aviation 
that might be hazardous. Do you think she paused? Well, you know what she thought it was? She thought it was a bootlegger asking her to fly some hooch someplace. Which is a job. She had turned down a position, like, along those lines to do that in Mexico. But, yeah. But she said, sure. Maybe. (laughs) So George Putnam, the publisher and PR man, had found her from some connections. You know, it was a very roundabout way. And people literally fell in love with her. She looked dignified, attractive, and stylish. And she was a legitimate pilot, which pleased Amy Guest a lot. This is no flighty damsel of society. No. No, she had enough feminine qualities to appeal to men. And she had enough ruggedness to do the job. Yeah. She had the credentials behind her. Well, here's the only bad thing, though. She wasn't going to pilot anything. She was just going to be a passenger. And she likened it to being a sack of potatoes. But she would be called the commander of the I know, flight, I love that. Which makes me laugh. The danger is not to be taken lightly. Since Charles Lindbergh made it, 55 people had tried. Five of them women. None of the women made it, obviously. Um, the five women ended up as follows. The first one, who was actually a princess... By the way, the first one disappeared. The second one had failed equipment. The third one was crashed, but rescued in the middle of the ocean. The fourth one disappeared. The fifth one, they only found parts of her plane. Okay, so now we're going to be number six in that illustrious yeah. string of Telling her success. that it was hazardous wasn't That's no joke. hyperbole. It's true. So as long as you can get over those odds, the only thing standing immediately in your way was that Mabel Bull had gotten another plane and was literally racing you. It's literally. literally. Yeah. Any competitive bone in your body, which Amelia did. It was on. It was on. And it wasn't just Amelia. It was the whole team. She asked for two weeks off, and she put a toothbrush and some hankies and a tube of cold cream in a bag. And she wrote her will, and she addressed letters to her family to be opened in case of her death. Here's a telling quote from one. My life has been really very happy, and I didn't mind contemplating its end in the midst of it. Yeah. She she appreciated the hazards of it. She had told Sam to tell her mom and her sister after the plane took off. So it was. she was in secret, big time, about this whole thing. They took some PR photos of her in her famous outfit, and then they were off. Or, on the fourth attempt, they were off. (laughs) They had a Fokker F7 called the Friendship, and it had been retrofitted with seaplane pontoons. I guess the thought was, okay, if it goes down, well, we're going to float, right? And that'll be good. (laughs) Yeah. Seaplane. But the thing is, seaplanes are very, very heavy. Um, They threw... A bunch of equipment in there. I mean, they loaded it down. It was state-of-the-art. Whereas Charles Lindbergh had had the seat removed out of his plane and replaced with a wicker one. So he weighed his boots. I mean, it was serious. He took it very seriously. These people were, like, throwing so much crap in there. It started out with so much gas, two and a half tons of gas, that it couldn't even lift off <laughs> before one of the crew had to get out. <laughs> Can you imagine? Here's the space shuttle launching, and a crew member has to come out. And that makes the difference between it. That 150 pounds is all that it needed to take off. And take off they did on June 3rd, 1928. It was a crew of three at this point. They took off finally from Newfoundland and they were gonna, from there they were gonna hop across the Atlantic. Unfortunately, George Putnam's PR machine got into gear before Sam could and Mama and Muriel had to read in the paper that she was doing this. (laughs) They were a little miffed. But uh, they landed in Newfoundland, and unfortunately, they stalled out there for 13 days. And we're talking, not talking luxurious accommodations here. They didn't bathe. <laughs> it's not like they're staying at the Ritz. So, you know, the pilot began to drink. 
and eventually they had a break in the weather. Amelia figured she had to get that pilot into the plane because they only had this short window. So she kind of got him into the plane and hoped that his intuition would kick into gear as soon as they got up. <laughs> they took off with only a 12-hour lead over Mabel Bowles' plane. So we could be reading about the fabulous Mabel Bowl and her diamond rings instead of Amelia Earhart, couldn't we? Only 700 of gallons of gas left when they took off. The weight had just been too much. Okay, if they go off course from their goal of Ireland, they would be toast. If they got bad winds, that wouldn't be good. And maybe the pontoons would have kept them afloat, but the radio clonked out almost immediately. So good luck with that. So all we can do is hope for good weather. Which they didn't really have. They had headwinds. They had rain. They had fog. They had snow. They had thunder. They might have taken off on a clear day, but it stopped being clear very rapidly. So when they landed at Burryport, Wales, they had no gas left. <laughs> and they just tied up to a buoy and waited to be found. <laughs> and then there was a major riot when the inhabitants saw Amelia, and her scarf was actually literally torn into little pieces as souvenirs and passed around. Um, they refueled and headed to Southampton, and all heck broke loose. Steamer horns went off, flags, crowds of people. Lady Astor, the first female member of Parliament, invited her to be her guest at the House of Commons. And that's the kind of person Amelia would have in her scrapbook. So I wouldn't mm-hmm. be surprised if Lady Astor wasn't in her scrapbook, too. Is she, she in your scrapbook? <laughs> she is not in my scrapbook. She's in my favorite book, oh, To Marry an English Lord, yes. which we've talked about before. Lady Astor is mm-hmm. talked about oh, yeah. in that book, too. Yeah. Um, she met royalty and famous people. She's a little bewildered and embarrassed, though, because she didn't fly the plane. She kept saying, the men deserve the credit. The men deserve the credit. And the headline the next day, Miss Earhart, girl flyer, shares praise with her mates. It's like, I'm not sharing the praise. I freaking was a sack of potatoes. I was sitting in the back on a gas can. So she had speaking engagements and tours, and then back home where a quarter of a million people waited to scream her name. You know, she's the most famous woman in the world at this point. This huge tour of welcome on her return, engineered by George Putnam, PR extravaganza. Putnam holds her up in his house in upstate New York so that she can write her book that, of course, he will publish, which was his goal all along. He would corral adventurers, and if they were not so literate, he'd assign them a ghostwriter, but he was like... We need this out right now while you're still fresh. Get it out. Get it out. And so she wrote her book in two weeks. It's called 20 Hours and 40 Minutes, Our Flight on the Friendship. And she dedicated it to George Putnam's wife, Dorothy Binney Putnam, under whose roof this was written. It was. They were actually very good friends. Financially, she was in a better place than ever before. She did not get paid for this flight, even though both men did, but for her book and appearances, uh, also as an aviation editor for Cosmopolitan. Seems kind of amazing. I don't know if they still have an aviation editor. We should probably check the masthead. She would write columns and answer letters and encourage women to fly, encourage young girls to fly. That was her job at Cosmopolitan. How cool is that? She was given a new plane by Lady Mary Heath, and she brought it home, and she flew solo all across America. And this flight, I think I think it was just to clear her head, like to get away. She could not be alone anywhere. Yeah. People would crowd her and scream and want to take parts of her clothes and crowd upon her. So up in the air she went, her solace, and she could land this plane she could land it anywhere. Uh, she wrote some memoirs about this flight. She landed in a guy's farmyard, and so he comes out of the house, and there's a plane. And he, he looks at her, and she looks at him, and he goes, Well, why don't y'all come in for a chicken dinner? 
I'm like, I love people of rural America. <laughs> and then uh, another time, an overzealous cowboy trying to help her out of the plane literally put his foot through the wing, and a lady got a piece of oilcloth, you know, those picnic tablecloths? Mm-hmm. And they fixed the wing. They glued a piece of tablecloth on the wing and fixed it. I just love that. And she'd yeah. get out of the plane and go, oh, I'm so tired of hotels. If only I could have somewhere else to stay. And she'd always be invited to stay at someone's house. It was really good air clearing for her. Yes. I love the thought of that trip. Do you- and with that trip, she became the first woman to round trip coast to coast. I don't even know if she set out to do it or not, but it was a good, it was nice. It was like, oh, well, I don't know if she did it or Putnam said, oh, look what we can, you know, we um, can promote a little bit more here because he was happy, more than happy, to keep her name in the press, and she was more than happy to do things. It was a very good arrangement. She became a vice president at Transcontinental Air Transport, which later became TWA. That's no small potatoes. No, no. And she participated in a women's Santa Monica to Cleveland rally, like a race, and the press unkindly called it the Powderpuff Rally. Can I please tell you that the sportsmanship in this race, it is amazing. Yes. Amelia, who had a big plane, carried the luggage of some other flyers in her plane because they didn't have room, the little planes. I mean, that's really nice. And it hampered her ability to fly faster, but it was fair. They agreed to delay a couple times because there was wind and the smaller planes would be at a disadvantage. Well, let's just wait until everybody has a fair shot. Mm -hmm. Or if somebody needed to repair something, everyone would wait. It was nine days. It was 2,500 miles. And the ladies really, really bonded during this trip. And I think the comradeship led to the first organization of female aviators. There were 117 women pilots with licenses. There are probably more without licenses. We know how that goes. Yeah. So invitations were sent out and 99 responded and so the group called themselves the 99s. It's still in existence. There's 5,000 plus members now. So, okay, so back to romance. Poor old Sam Chapman was still waiting in the wings. I can't believe it, but there he was. Mm. Amelia was so impatient with him for hanging out, for waiting for her, which I think is very unfair, but her point was, well, he should have been out there doing what he likes. I know I did. So they broke the engagement, and he never married. And they stayed friends. He never really got over her. Now, George Putnam, on the other hand, always had a lot of irons in the fire. He's not waiting around. He took care of her schedule, and he offered her coaching. Sure, but it wasn't all about her. He published lots of stories of adventurers, uh, including an expedition for 15-year-old boys to hunt lions in Africa, which... I don't know what happened on that deal. Didn't read that book. I don't think it's a good plan. I wouldn't send my 15-year-old with a gun to Africa. Good grief. But anyway, he had his own passions to pursue, and Amelia really admired that about him. Dorothy divorced George Putnam. A year afterward, Amelia and George were engaged. Now, don't feel too sorry for Dorothy, because she got married a month after she got divorced. Yeah, there's a lot of speculation, and you can read a number of theories about why they divorced, and obviously nobody really knows. You talk to members of her family, they blame it all on Amelia. But really, it was a two-way street. Well, and she got married a month after they got divorced. She had affairs, he had affairs. I think it was amicable. Yes, I don't think anybody's I do that angry. Amelia was so concerned, though, so concerned that marriage would wreck her career. So concerned, in fact, that on her wedding day... On her wedding morning, she wrote a letter to her prospective husband. She did, and in part it says, In our life together, I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness to me, nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. I must exact a cruel promise, and this is that you will let me go in a year if we find no happiness together. Wow. 
an expiration date. Term limits. Love it. So they got married. She said it's a partnership with dual controls, which is funny, referring to a training flight. I like to think of it as a business partnership with benefits. There you go. Now, he was a very good buffer, though. Yes. He was, and he was kind of the excuse when she was tired. He was the spin artist for the press, and he really was a true partner in life. Yeah, he loved her, and she loved him. There's no question in my mind about that, but it was definitely... They work together business-wise very well. Yes. Well, working on a second book, Amelia got the idea to go ahead and match Lindbergh's flight across the Atlantic to solo. No woman had done it yet. The fifth anniversary was coming up, and there were a couple of women dragging all their plans all over the press. Hmm. So with the greatest of subterfuges, I'm talking Amelia was literally outside, puttering around, burning leaves in the thing, calmly go marketing. It was all calm, but underneath the feet of the duck were paddling like crazy and everybody was making plans. Other people were testing the plane. Other people were loading up the supplies, making the plans, blah, blah, blah. They, in fact, tricked the press into thinking that was a male pilot's plane for some other expedition entirely. Mm -hmm. And so, suddenly, on May 20th, 1932, five years to the day of Charles Lindbergh's flight, good for you. That was really good PR. Hey, she's not married to a PR guy for nothing. So she she flew off in a Lockheed Vega, which is at the Air and Space Museum at the Smithsonian. They got that one. Yay. I guess that explains that Amy Adams character in Night of the Museum. Yeah, it does. Otherwise, I'm like, what are you doing here? Well, she's a historical figure. She would be in a museum. Well, yeah, but that, I mean, having a plane of hers explains her character. Yes. Which I, ah. I'm really not thinking Amelia Earhart's like that, but Amy Adams was very cute. She was adorable. Anyway. So, reporters did see her take off at the very last minute. They got clued in and ran down there just in time to see her go. So we get the picture. Goodbye. Yeah. So she took off with hot tomato soup, which was her thing, and a new scarf because the old one got destroyed, and a funnel and men's underwear. In case you're wondering... And you are wondering. Because even my son wondered. Because, you know, if you're a boy, you can just hang it in the wind and take care of business. If you're a woman, it's a little more challenging. And so, to answer your question, men's underwear, a funnel, and a jar. Moving on. Destination Paris. On the way, let's see. Blue flames on one wing, sputtering engines, crapped out altimeter, frozen controls, a deadly spin out, and a fuel gauge that let gasoline drip on the back of her head for the last quarter of the flight, otherwise uneventful. <laughs> Point to that flight when people say that she was not a skilled pilot. Exactly. I mean, you see that so much that you think, wow, she must not have been. But the fact of the matter is, every pilot out there had mishaps. Aviation was still new. This stuff happened. And that flight, wow. But it took her 15 hours, and she became the first woman to solo across the Atlantic. She did have to explain to the startled Irish farmer uh, who she was, but rest assured, everybody else knew who she was. Mm-hmm. It was a big deal. So if you thought the previous adulation was something when she was a sack of potatoes, you ain't seen nothing yet. She and Charles Lindbergh were still the only two who had done it by themselves. She hadn't brought any clothes with her. Whoops. So into the breach, awesomely, stepped Gordon Selfridge. 
son of Mr. Selfridge of department store fame, played so ably by Jeremy Piven. Well, uh, for those that do, this will sound familiar. He, Gordon Selfridge, convinced her to let her Lockheed Vega go on display at Selfridge's in the lobby. And then he loaded her up with clothes and presents. He has done that before. He did it with Anna Pavlova, the famous ballet dancer. He's done it with previous aviators, with famous explorers, Selfridges, like son, like father. So uh, royalty of many countries received her. The Queen of Belgium actually took her picture. <laughs> so excited to see her, which I thought was hilarious. They weren't doing selfies back then, unfortunately. <laughs> Except for Anastasia. Anastasia did the world's first oh, selfie, remember? Right. Anastasia Romanoff. Yes. First recorded selfie. Your mind just amazes me. Like, you just keep everything. It's like right there for you to just pluck out. It's too much nerdtaculariness. Yeah. So most of the U.S. government in D.C. turned out to welcome her home. I read in one thing that had a bomb gone off, the United States would have fallen apart because... Majority of both houses of Congress, everybody in line to take over if something happened to the president was there. It would have been bad, so thank goodness that didn't happen. She also became friends with Eleanor Roosevelt. So let's take another little break and leave her with that fabulous achievement uh, under her belt. And when we come back, we will take you through the end game of Amelia Earhart. Have you been to thehistorychicks.com lately? We've put our favorite books from seasons one through three in a little feature we like to call the carousel on the right side of our homepage. Give it a spin, and if you feel inspired to click through and purchase, Amazon.com will throw us some cash. Thanks to Amazon.com, and a special thanks to you for listening. And we're back. Between the years of 1930 and 1935, Amelia set a lot of records, and she did a lot of things, but let's... Just talk about a couple of them. She won an award from the American Woman's Association for, quote, outstanding contribution to society. She was the second recipient of this award. The first was Margaret Sanger. That award was actually given by one of Amelia's heroes, Dr. Lillian Gilbreth, industrial engineer, mm-hmm. the mom from Cheaper by the Dozen. That was in her scrapbook. And so that was a big deal. Also, she designed a line of pretty high-end clothing, a whole line that was in 30 department stores. The shirts were all made of parachute silk because you could just wash it and it wasn't so delicate. It was great. Before she had done that, she tried to design uniforms for the 99s, but they couldn't agree on one that they all liked. So it never Imagine happened. that. <laughs> Imagine 99 women not agreeing on a fashion choice. I wonder why. That's pretty funny. It is. And then here, we're going to just, a couple of these are recaps, but these are the records that she set between those years. She set a speed record. She set the women's altitude record. She was the first woman to fly across the Atlantic. She was the first woman to fly solo, coast to coast. She broke her own coast to coast speed record. She was the first person to fly from Hawaii to California, the first civilian aircraft with a two-way radio, the first person to fly from L.A. to Mexico City, and then from Mexico City to Newark. All in five years, she did that. Think about your last five years of your life. Did you accomplish that much? Incidentally, that Hawaii flight made her the first person to fly across both the Atlantic and the Pacific. 
So she'd break a record, go on a speaking tour, rinse and repeat. But you know what? She didn't always talk about flying. A lot of times she talked about women breaking out of the role society wanted for them. And, you know, seize the opportunity to pursue your dreams. 136 speeches in 1935 alone. A lot has been made of Amelia Earhart's feminism. I do think she was more of an individual feminist. Like, everyone has to decide what that means and go for it. And I also think that it was a little unrealistic for most women, especially if you have children. Right. You can have a dream, but you still got to wash the diapers in the sink. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. not like we could just go fly or... But I do think the takeaway from that is that, you know, don't give up. Don't be just an adjunct. Be your own person. Mm-hmm. I know, so that's a good... That's something everyone can take. Purdue University hired her for this reason. The education of women, they thought, and I agree, was critical to society. Can you think of a better role model for women at this time? No. I can't. And they had an aviation department. The number of female students that enrolled the year that Amelia Earhart was going to become a counselor there doubled. That says a lot for her poll. You know, something similar to that happened when old uh, Prince William enrolled at his college, too, but for a whole other reason. (laughs) So, she was seen as a huge success. Her students loved her, although she did advise the female students not to marry right away. That was her main piece of advice. But she was in her 30s when she married. Yeah. So now what? What is left? What is left to do? The world. That's what. We come at last, at long last, to the one. The flight you all know about. Around the world solo. The shining adventure. Purdue University bought her a Lockheed Electra 10E. Um, The only other person to own one was Howard Hughes. So... Let's see, what's the other word I like? Cockamamie. Cockamamie is a great word. Bring cockamamie back. Here we I go. I use it. Me too. So she wouldn't be the first one to go around the world, but she was the first one to go along the equator, the waistline of the earth. One thing to do ahead of time, muy importante, was to set up um, little caches of gas and oil and, honestly, airplane parts all along the route. So enter another Selfridge. Violette Selfridge, uh, now the Comtesse de Sebor. Good for her. A pilot with a pilot husband named Jacques, and they made it happen. So they set up the little pockets of supplies all over the world. That's really kind of cool. I'm it's sure they un- called people. Well, I'm sure they I were. They didn't do them all. Putnam was doing his job, too, and he was laying some groundwork for her. In addition to getting her press, he was getting her permission to fly over each country. You know that file is three inches tall. That's crazy. Yeah. He was able to get the Navy to support her, uh, which was kind of a big deal. There was tensions growing. This is pre-World War II. I mean, this is right at the the cusp of it. Amelia wrote to President Roosevelt. And I remember she's not quite besties with Eleanor, (laughs) but they're pretty tight. And to assure him that their motives were just adventure, she said, like previous flights, I am undertaking this one solely because I want to and because I feel that women now and then have to do things to show that women can do. Wow. Okay, so there was a tiny little hiccup. The Pacific crossing exceeded the range of her plane. So there needed to be a refueling stop right in the middle. Well, now where the heck was that going to be? And so one was chosen um, called Howland Island. It's 1,800 miles from Hawaii. Uh, It was kind of the best for the, the line that they needed to fly on. But unfortunately, her first attempt around the world faltered almost as soon as it began. The landing gear collapsed not very far into the journey, and the resulting damage got the Lockheed Electric 10E a one-way ticket to California on a boat. 
that's not the direction or the method of transportation that would be ideal in this situation. Mm-hmm. Wasn't what she had in mind. Mm-mm. Originally, she was going to have a navigator along for the first, you know, that big stretch from Hawaii to Helmand Island, which was like a, <laughs> a crapshoot, really. So they switched directions to be with the wind. So the hard part would be at the end. Fred Noonan is the navigator that was uh, picked up to go along, was going to have to go on the entire ride with her. On the original plan, he was getting off at Holland Island. Now, we're not going to talk about every stop, but there is a website called tripline.net, and you'll have to search for Amelia Earhart, that has, like, stop by stop what happened, which I think is really good. I mean, it's no sense us talking about it when you can just read it nicely on that website. And on Thursday, May 21st, 1937, her repaired Lockheed Electra took off from Oakland, California, on its way east around the world... They had so many adventures and so much sightseeing. They rode camels and they met people and it's just very, like, they didn't just go around the world. They really experienced the world. It doesn't matter how fast they go, as long as they go. Mm -hmm. So that was good. Now, they did make it most of the way. It's 22,000 miles covered by the time they got to New Guinea on June 29th. So we're looking at just over a month. Two stops remain, Holland Island and Honolulu, and then the adventure ends in California. This part of the journey, though, was so challenging that a U.S. Navy ship called the Itasca was standing by to help them reach this teeny tiny target. Howland Island is only two miles long. It's a half mile wide. It is low to the ocean. Yes. So they painted the Itasca white. They planned, as soon as they thought the plane was close, they were going to send out black smoke that could be sent for miles. Right. There was a plan. So 15 minutes before and after the hour, Amelia was to contact them and get course corrections or weather reports, and they were there for her, man. They were there. It's like they were just going to guide her into Holland Island. So, hooray. But the troubles began about 14 hours into the flight. So the Itasca got their message. The first message was mm-hmm. kind of unclear. Cloudy, weather cloudy. So they started to be on alert. Okay, they're close enough. They're close enough to start talking to now. She was getting none of their messages, though. And they can hear her, mm-hmm. but she can't hear them. Unfortunately, and the Navy swore they warned her about this beforehand, they did not have sufficiently calibrated equipment on the frequency she was using. Also, unfortunately, Amelia and Fred uh, Noonan had ditched their lower frequency radio for weight reasons, and um, this was mostly used for Morse code to contact ships. But neither of them were really comfortable with Morse code, so why keep it? They ditched it. They trusted the technology, which a lot of people that are in aviation, I mean, you trust technology when you get on a roller coaster. That's true. So they had that level of trust that things would work out for them, and if they didn't, that they could fix it. Right. So the next message comes along. We must be on you, but cannot see you. Gas is running low, unable to reach you by radio, flying flying at a 1,000 feet. So the ship, I mean, everybody's out with their binoculars. Where the heck? If they're on us, we should hear them, at least. Nothing. Something. There's there, nothing. There's literally nothing. About three hours later, another message comes in, and Amelia sounds a little panicked at this time. And she says, we are running north and south. And then nothing. Absolutely. Empty silence. July 2nd, 1937, Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan were lost. There was a massive search mounted, uh, $4 million worth of search, by the way, which the president was taken to task for later. Aircraft carriers, planes, all hands on deck, uh, including, idly, one Japanese ship. 
which is interesting. <laughs> anyway, uh, I was hanging out. They searched an area the size of Texas for a small plane. So that's what you're looking at. Amelia's husband kept up the search the longest. Um, he would try to follow up on all these leads. These radio messages had come, and they'd follow up on a lead, and it would be just, nah, it's janky, it's from somewhere, it's from this. And he was listening and listening, and after a year, even he had to admit, they're gone. Yeah. He gave up. The country, the world, was in shock. Yeah, she was almost there. She had accomplished so much in her life, and now she just disappeared. Fred Noonan was declared dead in 1938. Amelia Earhart, not till 1939. Poor man. She's a national treasure. Okay, I asked people who Fred Noonan was, and somebody goes, was he that guy from the B-52s? No one had any idea who Fred Noonan was. So, Fred Noonan, we salute you. You did the best you could. So, what happened to them? Cockamamie theories, there's that word again, include alien abduction, Okay. Sure. <laughs> and faking their own deaths to get some peace. Now, Amelia Earhart actually did say this was to be her last flight. And you and I know from watching cop shows, any cop who says, this will be my last day before retirement is for the chop. <laughs> In the first hour of the movie. Yeah. So, you never say that, Amelia Earhart. There was a common thread running through the public consciousness about now. The Japanese. The Japanese. Like, it could be any number of things. Were they spying, and then they would pretend to get lost so a lot of American military could go look at Japan while pretending to look for the lost aviator? That was an interesting theory to me because Vincent Astor gets pulled into that one. As on a spy mission for Roosevelt, Vincent Astor and his yacht is sent out to the South Pacific to look for Amelia, but in actuality, he's supposed to be spying on the Japanese. So we have a little tiny grain of truth. <laughs> he was there. There's another um, that they were kidnapped and kept as prisoners by Japan. Muriel flat out asked the Japanese, do you have my sister? And they said no. Then there's this one, Scott that she was kidnapped and made to give radio broadcasts as Tokyo Rose, those women that spoke English during World War II and said things like, you know, American soldier, your girlfriend at home is sleeping with the neighbor. You should just give up now and go home. It's never going to work out. The simplest theory, of course, is what? Crash what? and sink. Yeah. <laughs> the Itasca had been catching sharks all day, by the way. This didn't look good if they did crash. Or, and this theory is gaining credence all the time... Did they land on or near an island and live as castaways for however long? There is a concern called the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, which Tigar is their <laughs> has put forth the theory that Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan, you know, the guy from the B-52s, <laughs> landed on a reef just outside of an uninhabited island called Gardner Island, also called Nikumororo, which we will be calling Gardner Island. <laughs> now, what is their evidence? If you haven't heard about this, you're going to freak. After ten missions, here's what they have. They have a woman's compact, or parts of it. Amelia Earhart was known to keep one. Once with Nita Snook, she whipped out her compact and powdered her nose before people came to take her picture, which is funny. Part of a sextant with a serial number that was very close to one that Fred Noonan was known to have. A pocket knife that was manufactured in Rhode Island. A jar of 1930s era freckle cream called Dr. Berry's Freckle Ointment. She had a lot of freckles. And she was known to have hated them. And she was known to take cold cream on flights, so... 
buttons, a shoe, a zipper from a flight jacket, also remnants of what they called inexperienced castaway meals, inconsistent with Native Islanders. Like things clumsily hunted, clumsily taken apart, evidence of shells that had been exposed to fire, so it's not animals opening these things, um, pieces of glass that had been fashioned into crude knives. Hello. This is mounting up. Now, May 2013, they have some brand new evidence. A 22-foot-long anomaly on sonar about the right size of Amelia's Electra, about 600 feet underwater and about where they thought it should be. See what I mean? How it's, like, really getting close? So the theory is the plane made an emergency landing on the reef, which is just outside the island, and it stayed dry so they would run the engine to charge the radio and send messages. So maybe those phantom messages that they heard that they dismissed were not phantom messages at all. Okay. You know. Then the weather forced the plane off the reef uh, into the ocean. You can't charge the radio anymore. Radio out. And the castaways off to Gardner Island. I don't know. I'm sure every single piece of evidence can be explained away, but as a body... Hmm. There's a skeleton, ultimately identified as a European woman, although first misidentified as a native man, etc. Might or might not have been found around 1940, but in some mysterious way, the skeleton vanished between 1940 and now. Well, the government was busy in 1940. That is true. They did have (laughs) things to think about. Well, that said, the skeleton's gone, but the man took copious notes, and uh, it's a possibility. It is a possibility, although, don't you wish you had the skeleton for DNA? That's what I wish. Well, Tigar's going back for try number 11. They're going to follow up on that sonar picture, so we wish them luck. And we will let you know if there's anything exciting. So, Beckett, you think Amelia Earhart is dead? Oh, no. She is alive and well and a reporter in Denver. She's a meteorology student and has a blog about her life and plans to fly around the world. She's retraced some of Amelia's adventures. Is her name really Amelia Earhart? Her name, I don't know if that's that's the name she uses. Uh, I don't know if she's legally changed it. You can follow her on Twitter. We'll link you up. She has a blog. She's very pretty, and there's lots of nice pictures of her by planes, which is kind of similar to Amelia Earhart 1. Also, there's the Amelia Earhart Museum.com, which is within striking distance of here in Atchison, Kansas. I know. I keep promising my son I will take him. He read a book on Amelia Earhart, and he thought it was fascinating. So I'm going to take him. We're coming. Also, Biography.com has an excellent article on Amelia Earhart, too. Um, there is a Biography documentary. I've gotten it on Netflix, and it is totally worth watching, if only for the bets, by Eleanor Smith, who was a pilot in the 1930s. She is hysterical, and Muriel is actually, the sister Muriel is in that. Um, and there's a National Geographic 2009 documentary entitled, Where is Amelia Earhart?, which goes into a lot of the theories um, that we just kind of brushed over, but if you want a little bit more visual information, it's on there. There is the 2009 Hillary Swank Richard Gere movie. Did you watch it? Universally hated. Wooden and whiny, I guess is how I'd watch it if you want. I mean, <laughs> wooden and whiny, but watch it. No, make your own opinion. Do, yeah. Um, 1994, Diane Keaton, interestingly, as Amelia Earhart, called The Final Flight. Mm, I am not a fan, however, it won an Emmy in 1995. It's a TV movie and um, a Golden Globe nomination for Diane Keaton, so. Uh, you Which know. is more than can be said for Hillary Swank. 
true. There is a 1976 miniseries starring Susan Clark as Amelia. I can't get a hold of that anywhere, so if you know of a link, then. Um, but here's the one. Here's the one that I like because I like the star. 1943, Flight for Freedom. Rosalind Russell, the only anti-mame. Sorry, Lucille Ball. Rosalind Russell couldn't be closer. It's a sensationalized version of Amelia Earhart. The name Amelia Earhart never mentioned. But listen to the plot. A famous aviatrix breaks world records and sets off an around-the-world attempt, which is a cover for spying on the Japanese, and she disappears. Hmm. I heard that somewhere. I know. Like in the last hour. (laughs) So, yeah. So there you go. If you can get Fight for Freedom. Although you should probably zip on over to the 99s.org. We'll give you a link because, like we said, they're still an organization, very active. You can check out the work that they do. We're going to do books. Books. Did you have a favorite? There's two. East to the Dawn, The Life of Amelia Earhart by Susan Butler. It's got a lot of pictures. It's written very conversationally, and it really covers her childhood, young adulthood very well. It's not just about her flight career. So I love that. Also, another biography that's smaller, if you don't have hours and hours to put this stuff in your head. Amelia read really fast. Yes. (laughs) Amelia Earhart by Doris Rich. And then Amelia Earhart wrote a book. Well, it's a collected thing. Called The Fun of It, Random Records of My Own Flying and Women in Aviation by Amelia Earhart. Yeah, the one that I like the most is The Turbulent Life of an American Icon by Kathleen Winters. Also for the under, what do you say, 12 set, Mm -hmm. there's a DK biography, Amelia Earhart, A Photographic Story of a Life by Tanya Lee Stone, who has written some that we have recommended in the past it's kind of it's a children's book but it's it's fun the language is good i think now there's a couple of books about the recovery effort not so much about her life but about hey this flight happened she disappeared now what like the end game type of thing the first book that i guess we would recommend if you i would say if you would like to nerd out on detail Oh, that is really good, yes. Um, this one actually has, an, well, the hardback does, an included DVD that will show you all the documents so you can check for yourself. And I got mine at the library. And so I got mine too. at the library, too. With and, the DVD in it. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's called Finding Amelia, the True Story of the Earhart Disappearance by Rick Gillespie, who is part of Tigar, the expedition, with the theory about Gardner Island. And if you're not quite there yet wanting to talk about so much scientific detail but still want to hear you know what's happening there's a book called amelia Earhart's shoes by king and jackson are the two first authors there are there are four it's more story-like and probably more approachable less technical and if you would like to read about the legacy of amelia Earhart and the 99s There is a book I recommend called Amelia Earhart's Daughters, The Wild and Glorious Story of American Women Aviators from World War II to the Dawn of the Space Age by Leslie Hainsworth and David Toomey. So let's leave you with a poem that Amelia Earhart wrote entitled Courage. How can life grant us boon of living or compensate for dull gray ugliness and pregnant hate unless we dare the soul's dominion each time we make a choice? We pay with courage to behold the restless day and count it fair. Thanks for listening. Bye. For show notes, links to the things we talked about today, or to donate, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter 
at the History Chicks with an X or like us on Facebook without an X. If you'd like us in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com. Wins. Woo.